morning, everyone. So nice to see you. So nice to hear you singing. If you're watching at home, I hope you have like a Dolby Atmos surround sound with THX. Because if you don't, you're not getting what we're getting here. <laughs> yeah, maybe we're not sending it in Dolby Atmos THX. Okay, we need a new IMAX camera now. Um, so we're continuing in this series uh, in Colossians, and um, just as a quick overview to catch everybody up, and maybe you're joining for the first time, either here or online, uh, I want you to remember so far that Paul has been stressing two or three main priorities to these um, Christian believers, people he hasn't met, church that was planted And uh, he's never been there. He's never seen them. It's a good church, though. He's got no rebuke for them. Uh, They haven't done anything wrong that he's aware of. They're just a good little church uh, growing up in the gospel that that they were planted in. And and the two or three main priorities he communicates to them and would communicate to us is that you fully belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And in your faith in God and Jesus Christ, you have unity together. And you should be using your Christian unity in your church as the environment to grow deeper in your knowledge and wisdom and understanding of who God is. That's where you go after the gospel when you're a new baby Christian, baptized and circumcised, the old flesh taken away and dead to your old life and raised again in Christ. He talked about all of that stuff, you remember. He said when that happens, then you use that Christian unity to grow in the knowledge of God and get deep roots in that knowledge. It's important. And so that rudimentary truth will, or that, that rudimentary growing will, will protect you from elemental spirits of this world and from deceptive philosophies and plausible arguments. But You have everything that you need in Jesus, who's full of the fullness of God and in the fullness of knowledge of wisdom. He's the head. He's the ruler. He's the authority over everything. In him, you fully belong to God for his glory. And you reach your full potential and full satisfaction in Christ Jesus, and nothing is lacking at all. And that's been the crux of the message so far to these Christians, and it's an encouraging message. And now as we finish up chapter 2, Paul has just a little bit more to expand on this initial common theme. And you see Paul anticipates here in these verses in chapter 2, verses 16 to 23, and you can turn there in your Bible if you want to get ready. But you'll see Paul anticipates a problem in this church of Colossae. Specifically, not only is the cultural air around you, church, as you exist in your country, Not only is the cultural air around you something you need to guard against, it isn't just empty philosophies or plausible arguments that come at you from out there. Paul says in his text today that even people who profess your faith are going to come at you with some crazy ideas that appear wise and that seem helpful, but that they are not. So it's not just the cultural air out there that you want the knowledge of God for. You need the knowledge of God because even in the church, There are going to be things that you need to be able to discern. And so don't let the ideas of other people cause you to feel disqualified or coming up short or, most importantly, bind you and make you feel captive to something that is not really from God. And what Paul's going to get into in this text, and we'll see, is that, in essence, 
Christians need to use their increased knowledge and wisdom and understanding of God in order to reform and to correct their conscience, what tells us is right and wrong in practice, so that by our own God-refined conscience, we are guarded against false guilt and useless religious practices that don't conform with Jesus and his new covenant relationship with us. And then secondly, we use the liberty of our renewed consciences to live in unity with those that may even hold different views than us. If you can imagine, there are people out there, even in the church, that have a different idea about things than you do. But Paul wants this church in Colossae to be unified. So he says, don't get fooled, don't be deceived by those philosophies outside. And then I think you'll see as we unpack this text today, he says, it also applies inside. You need to grow in your wisdom and understanding of God to renew your conscience and know how to use your conscience in how you act in the church in unity. So let's look then, and I'll just pray before we read God's Word. Father God, thank you for your Word. We depend on your Holy Spirit to enlighten us, to open our eyes, to understand what it is that your Apostle is telling us, what your Holy Spirit is telling us through the Apostle Paul. And we need your Holy Spirit to have it actually understandable, and then more than just understandable, transform us so that we live according to it. So we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So let's look at the text. It's Colossians 2, 8 to 15. So you remember he said, So see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. No. Why do I have the wrong slide up there? Okay. I apologize, especially to those online. I have the wrong text in my slides, and I don't know how that happened. So ignore that. I'll go back there. Pretend that didn't happen. <laughs> Colossians 2, 16 to 23. I have no idea. I'm in the right... Oh, there it is. Okay, there we go. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm still getting used to this new technology. Okay, so back up. Record scratch. Back up. We're going to look at the text. We're going to pick out what Paul is talking about in terms of how we use our conscience for Christian unity. Colossians 2, 16 to 23. I'm all caught up. Sorry about that. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God." If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." So what is Paul talking about here? He's talking about unity within the body, guarding against internal division. And he starts the text with, therefore, because all the people 
or because all of the unity and the wisdom and the knowledge that you have, the therefore, because you belong fully to God, therefore use that truth now to make sure no one judge you or disqualify you on any of those old things. And Paul gives a bunch of examples of the kinds of things that people in churches might try to use against one another. So he tells this church in Colossae, be careful of these kinds of things that can cause disunity. And he says things like um, food and drink, referring primarily to what would be considered clean and unclean in several different ways. The question is, that is basically being asked, is what can God's people participate in and still be considered God's people? And there were Old Testament food laws given to Israel about not eating pork or not eating shellfish or don't eat anything with a cloven hoof that also chews the cud. So that means no rabbit and also no moose. I don't think there was a lot of moose in Israel, but if you were a Canadian Israelite, you couldn't eat moose. And and you know in the New Covenant, though, you remember Peter's dream in Acts chapters 10, right? Peter was supposed to minister to the Gentiles, and Jesus gave him a dream where all this unclean food came down on a sheet, and he said, go ahead and eat it. What God has made clean, let no one call common. And so Paul is talking about that in terms of don't get hung up on food and drink. That's the old covenant. That's the old law. But Paul was also probably talking about the pagan and religious practices of the Roman culture, where meat would be found at the market, was often meat that had been part of a ritual at a temple. Similar to the Old Testament, where the meat offered at certain feasts at the temple was then used by the priests and the Levites. It wasn't always burnt or consumed. And so, in idolatry of Greece and Rome, they had perfectly good meat that was left over after the sacrificial killing, and so that meat went to the market. And there was a question, do Christians eat meat that was part of a pagan sacrifice? This is something, this is a matter of conscience, and we'll touch on that later. But Paul here, he says, don't let anyone judge you on that sort of stuff. All that religious, clean, unclean stuff is only a shadow of true purity and righteousness. The substance of clean, pure, and righteous belongs to Jesus, who you have. It was Jesus himself who said in Matthew 15, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. So Paul talks about cleanness and uncleanness and food and drink. What, what can Christians do in society? And then Paul mentions uh, festivals and Sabbaths and new moons and all the religious ceremony of the old law. They are shadows of the real thing. Don't let anyone judge you simply on what rituals you participate in. Jesus only gave us baptism and communion. Those are the two ordinances that the church follow. You don't need to add anything else to what Jesus has called us to do. So Paul says, don't be judged by these things. I think mainly referring to our sanctification. Don't let people tell you that you're not a good Christian or you're not as far along in your Christian life if you, do, if you don't do all these extra things. He says, don't let your conscience be troubled by them. You're not less Christ-like just because you eat bacon. You're not less Christ-like just because you go to church on Sunday rather than Saturday or on Saturday rather than Sunday. That is not the important thing in the Christian life, and don't be judged on those things. And then Paul highlights some more things, some teachings and practices not to be drawn heavily into. In verse 18, he says, don't be disqualified, which I think refers more to salvation. He says, don't let anyone tell you that to be truly saved, you have to be an ascetic. 
You have to be living like a monk. You know, you have to deny everything and have nothing. That's not exactly true. Or he says, don't let people disqualify you because you don't have mystical visions and dreams and sensual experiences. He says, don't you know, think that you are somehow disqualified if you don't worship or communicate with angels. And all of these false religious practices have a common element, which Paul touches on. They're all personal and singular and individual. They make people feel especially righteous or holy and actually arrogant, Paul says, puffed up because they have special experiences with God that you don't have. Oh, you don't have dreams of Jesus? You know, you don't talk to angels. You don't have these ecstatic experiences. Well, you're, you may not even be saved. You know, and Paul says, no, that's not going to go on in this church. Don't let that stuff divide you. Now, I'm not saying those things never happen, but Paul says here they're not required. They're not for everyone. And Paul says, don't make anyone let you feel unsanctified or unsaved, judged or disqualified, because you don't have their experiences. Whether it's speaking in tongues, slain in the Spirit, a dream, a vision, seeing Jesus, hearing angelic voices, speaking in angelic tongues, whatever it is that's out there going on, God may be doing that. But you're not disqualified just because you're not doing it. Rather than these people having these individual experiences and coming to judge you and divide the church over these things, Paul then paints the exact opposite picture to contrast that. He says a healthy, growing unity in Christ. He says that stuff, in contrast, in verse 19, he says, don't do any of that stuff that is not holding fast to the head from, here's what he wants, the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and its ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. See, that's the contrast. That's what he wants. He wants unity, not disunity. He doesn't want people dividing over all these secondary, tertiary things that are far from the gospel and from Jesus Christ. And so the opposite of individualistic, sensuous experiences are these unhealthy, individualistic self-disciplines of not eating that or or eating that, or recognizing these rituals, or behaving this way. Paul's contrast is unified, whole body, nourished, healthy, strong, knit together, in community, all the parts, joints and ligaments together, growing with a growth. That's the goal that Paul wants. Unity, community, accountability, healthy. And then Paul shifts from the positive back to the negative again, saying, if if with Christ you died to the world... Why are you still acting like it has a hold on you? Paul's basically saying, why why are you acting like it matters what you eat or drink or what religious stuff other people are doing or what human traditions people are following? You are dead in Christ to all of that. And he says all of that only appears to be wise. It has the appearance of wisdom. Remember, this is the church equivalent of the plausible arguments of the world. Paul says the world has plausible arguments that you need the knowledge and unity with Christ to guard against. And he says the church has a lot of crazy ideas inside of it at times. And you need unity with Christ and knowledge and wisdom of God to guard against that as well. It appears wise, he says, but it's really worthless. He says it has no value in real sanctification, no value in real transformation. What does have value is being attached to the head, to Christ, and to the rest of the body, being knit together with faithful believers. That's Paul's cry for unity to the Colossian church, to not get sucked into things, even in the church, that might divide. 
So then you ask, where does conscience come into? Because I said, this is about unity and Christian conscience. And as we've unpacked this text in Colossians, I know that many of you out there, because you are Bible-saturated people, and you know your New Testament well, have probably had other texts popping into your head. We've looked at some things Jesus said already. We've looked at the dream of Peter that's related to this, but I know you are also probably thinking of maybe 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 10, also maybe Romans 14. Some of you might have even been thinking of 1 Timothy. You were all thinking of these things, right? I know you were, because they just pop in our head. Because Paul has dealt with this theme of the Christian conscience before. It's important. He's talked about it several times in his letters. And the reason that he's talked about it is that the knowledge of Christ and the gospel has a direct impact on renewing and restoring our human conscience in order that it may be more trustworthy in discerning these types of things. So that when something comes to us, someone comes to us with these ideas, religious ideas or secular ideas, with a renewed Christian conscience, we can understand how we should react to that idea and to the person that holds it. What Paul does not say explicitly in Colossians 2, he says explicitly elsewhere. Food, drink, clothing, religious practice, cultural norms, what we do, what we don't do, how we live. In order as Christians to know how we should approach all these secondary issues, we need to understand our own consciences well. And we need to understand the consciences of others. And understand how the knowledge of God and the gospel is at work over time transforming our Christian consciences into more trustworthy. They're not infallible, but more trustworthy guides. So what is our conscience then? Why don't I have... Okay, I thought I had it in there. (laughs) What is our conscience then? Our conscience is the inherent ability of every human being to perceive what we believe is right and wrong, and based on the strength of our perception to monitor and evaluate and control our actions. And so we use our conscience to some degree with every decision we make as human beings and as Christians. And Paul combines the words with other words with the Greek word for conscience, which is sunidesis, which is my slide here, And sunidesis is combined with other words in order to identify several types of conscience. He says in Corinthians, we may have a weak conscience. He says we may in Titus have a corrupted conscience. He says we may have a seared conscience in 1 Timothy. He says also we may have a good conscience or a clear conscience in Timothy as well. And so Paul clearly believes that the human conscience on its own is not infallible. Like every other part of our humanity, our conscience has been distorted by sin. A human conscience is shaped by imperfect and even harmful experiences in our past. Our conscience is transformed by and shaped by deceitful or misleading information and teaching. The human conscience is part of ourselves that we come out of the world from by the power of the gospel and under the grace of God. It's part of us that requires sanctification. It requires being held up to the mirror of God's word and to the transforming power of the spirit. Our conscience, and this is where we just sort of lazily fall into some habits. Even as we come to Christ, I think some Christians believe that our conscience, even a Christian conscience, is somehow the voice of God telling us right and wrong. 
And it isn't always the voice of God. It's our voice in our heads. It's still in large part our perceptions and our motivations. And Paul says our conscience can be everything from corrupted to seared to good and clear. There's a whole spectrum of Christian conscience out there. So because we can encounter within ourselves and within others a whole spectrum of conditions for our consciousness, consciences, all of the Bible's teaching about conscience bears a common hallmark. It's humility. It's be very careful with your own conscience and be very careful with the consciences of others around you. But let's look at what Paul has taught on conscience outside of Colossians and see where we're getting this. And I'm going to paraphrase through some of the following text. But in 1 Corinthians 8, I mentioned, Paul says, Therefore, as to eating of food and offered to idols, there you go, food and drink, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, their former life, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and we are no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols, and so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. That's what Paul says in chapter 8. Now he goes on in chapter 10 and he picks it up and he says, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, kind of implies you might not be disposed to go. I don't know. Can you turn? That's interesting. Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Okay, there's some really interesting teaching here on conscience, isn't there? Paul is being very explicit that he's talking about our conscience and their conscience and what we do and what we don't do and what's real and what's not real. And we only have time to hit the highlights. But there are three main lessons in these texts on how Christians are meant to interact with other Christians who have a different conscience than ours, or who have arrived at a different moral conclusion. The first point we commonly take from these texts involves the highest principle, which is humility. We read these words of Paul, and our takeaway, rightly in Corinthians, is that if we know there's a real possibility of offending the conscience of another Christian, we should defer to their conscience, even if our conscience isn't offended. The practice of Paul and the example he gives is, if it offends them, I won't eat the meat offered at idols. In fact, Paul uses perhaps the strongest possible warning by saying that Sinning against your brothers by wounding their conscience, you are actually sinning against Christ. I mean, let that warning sink in. In these matters of conscience, if you just arrogantly override the conscience of other Christians around you, you are sinning against Christ. 
So if in matters of conscience we forego humility and insist on imposing our rights on other people, it's not a small matter. And that's the main lesson that we usually take from this text, and it's a good lesson. Obviously, it's a lesson that it's serious and it should be heeded. We need to be very humble in exercising our conscience because we must not wound others. And humility in matters of conscience maintains unity where our behavior may otherwise have caused offense and disunity. And Paul does not want disunity in matters of conscience among brothers and sisters. But secondly, there's another lesson. And you don't have to read between the lines for the second lesson too much because Paul says it repeatedly. It's obvious. Lesson two is that even a Christian conscience can be wrong. The whole point of 1 Corinthians 8 is this. The whole example of this text is based on the premise that well-meaning and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ have made a mistake in judging that food offered at idols is wrong to eat. They're actually wrong in their conscience. They haven't judged properly the propriety of eating meat sacrificed at idols. They are believers. They have the Holy Spirit. But they don't have, and here it comes back to Colossians again, Paul says, they do not possess knowledge. They don't know. They apparently not, at this point, in this area of their life at least, come to a full knowledge of the freedom and the grace that they have in Jesus Christ to not worry about whether the meat is offered at idols or not. Kind of like Peter himself, who needed a dream from Jesus to tell him that not only was pork okay to eat, but the Gentiles were included in the covenant. Even Peter, in his conscience, didn't understand this. And later in Peter's ministry in Galatia, we read that he still sometimes ate only with Jews and didn't sit at the table with the Gentiles. So even Peter, in his conscience, can be wrong. And so 1 Corinthians 8 is basically still another lesson on humility. We have to be humble on matters of conscience because our conscience may be the wrong that's wrong. And that's sometimes hard for us Christians to understand, is that even our Christian conscience can be in error. So Paul is basically, the lesson from this would be before you go around telling people that you are acting as a Christian based on a matter of conscience, even your Christian conscience, and that your conscience gives you the right to do as you please, you better as a Christian be actually certain that your conscience is right and not wrong. And even if your conscience is right, we've already learned, Paul says, don't impose your conscience on them anyway, because their conscience is different than yours. So the second lesson is also humility. But there's a last lesson that we look at today, and it's connected to the first and the second lesson, because as Paul concludes this example in now Corinthians chapter 10, he puts the two ideas together. Be humble and don't impose your conscience on others, and look, your conscience might be the one that is wrong, so before you go around insisting on your conscience taking priority, you better be certain your conscience actually is correct on this matter. He puts those two things together. Paul concludes in the 10th chapter, even if your conscience is correct, even if your conscience is not bound by the conscience of others or Scripture, you still don't exercise the liberty of your conscience over others. You are free not to use your liberty. Consider the last two verses in chapter 10 carefully to see this. He says, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it 
For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? And maybe the lesson is more clearly stated this way. Our liberty in our conscience is not maintained. It is not guarded. Our liberty in our conscience as Christian is not even fully realized for us by our need to express it in action. Our liberty in our conscience as Christians is wholly realized in the freedom of our conscience, but which we may still freely constrain in the interest of others. The liberty of our conscience resides in the fact that we are not compelled or constrained in our own conscience. The liberty of our conscience does not reside in our right to act according to that conscience. You see, it's a nuanced point, and it's almost contradictory. That last sentence of Paul's is almost confounding, because he says, if someone is worried about the food being part of a sacrifice, then don't eat it for the sake of their conscience. So it sounds like Paul has just given up his liberty to eat meat based on the other person's conscience. But the last sentence says, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Paul, you're confusing me. You just gave up your liberty. So the liberty, this is the point, the liberty that Paul is talking about in his conscience is fully realized, not by his need to actually act in that liberty. The liberty of his conscience is that his conscience is truly free. He's not compelled. He's not compelled by the opinion of the other person. He's not compelled by whatever ritual. He's not compelled by any reason. But he doesn't need to express it in order to have that liberty. He just knows he has that liberty. And in fact, he uses that liberty in this example to give up his liberty, to not eat the meat. He actually uses his liberty of conscience to act humbly, Because to Paul and for Christians, the liberty of our conscience does not reside in our necessity to act on it or flaunt it or exercise it. The liberty of our conscience is fully realized in our freedom from compulsion that we have because of God's grace. Our knowledge of our freedom releases us from compulsion. Sorry. That's the same slide, so it's okay. Rather, and this is where it comes back to unity, rather than behaving in a way, even in his liberty, that would cause a wedge in Christian relationships, we have the freedom to act in a way that maintains unity. And so, in fact, the third lesson is, in fact, humility as well. The government cannot compel my conscience. Others cannot compel my conscience. My conscience is free from others and bound only to God and true knowledge of him and his scripture. However, my conscience is so free and my liberty is so secure that I don't have to prove it by acting a certain way. I can use my liberty to serve others. Jesus said essentially the same thing to Peter when the temple collectors came around to their, get their tax. And we talked about this a couple of years ago when we were in Matthew. Remember, Peter came, said, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. Yes, he doesn't, or yes, he That's a weird answer. But anyway, then he came into the house, and Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of earth take toll or tax? From the sons or from others? And he said, From others. And Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. 
However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take that first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying the sons are free. We're not citizens of earth, but we're citizens of heaven. Our ultimate authority is not the temple or the kings or the government of the earth. We're not bound by these earthly things. We have liberty. But Jesus says, ah, for the sake of our testimony, so we don't give offense, for the sake of our kingdom mission, since we're here on earth to spread the gospel, Peter, let's use our freedom to pay them what they ask. And by the way, I will provide anything you're lacking in order to make that payment. So in terms of our conscience, I think Paul would take the words of Jesus here and he would say, use your freedom to honor the consciences of others. It has no bearing on your liberty, whether you act in that or not. Peter doesn't have to, you know, prove his liberty by not paying the temple tax. That has nothing to do with our freedom. And as a believer, whatever you think it costs you to honor the conscience of others... Jesus will more than provide and make up to you. He will make up to you anything you think it costs you to honor the conscience of others. It won't really cost you anything to follow this command of humility. It's about guarding against internal division in the church. This is what Paul wants to get across to the church in Colossians. Whether it's Colossians or Corinthians... You know, the Christian conscience, Paul wants us to use very, very, very carefully. We have to remember as Christians that our conscience is still partly fallen in the fall of our sin, that we are in the process of renewing our conscience. And so we need to be humble. We need to know by our knowledge of God the difference between the shadows of things and the real things. Paul wants these Christians to know that they're not bound by the demands or the consciences of other people but only by the knowledge of God. Even other Christians, because their consciences may be wrong. And your conscience may be wrong. And so we need to be humble towards them. Humble in our own certainty. But even if you're fully convinced, even if you're filled with the knowledge of God in some manner, your Christian liberty is not dependent on acting on that liberty. You are told... We are commanded. We are given the example again and again and again that we use our liberty in order to esteem others' needs, to esteem the needs of the weaker brother, to act according to the needs of those around us, not according to our needs. That's the kind of church we want to be. We want to be Christians that are conforming our conscience, first of all, to make sure that our conscience is actually in line with what the Scriptures teach. But even as we are confident in our freedom and in our knowledge, using and treating very carefully how we use our conscience with regard to others, to care for them and act according to their needs. Let's be that kind of church. Let's be that kind of body of Christ, not caught up in selfish, individualistic, spiritual experience that we lord over others, nor be a kind of people that are exerting our Christian rights because of matters of conscience. Rather, Paul would have this good little church in Colossae be Christians who are so secure and so confident in their liberty that they use that freedom to serve others humbly where they are and meet them where their conscience is at. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this teaching in Colossians. We thank you that you've given us this example of a good little church that really doesn't have a lot of terrible things going on in it. 
and the exhortation that the Apostle Paul gives them. And we hear these exhortations and they land on us as well because we want to be that good little church where really there's not a lot of fires to put out. We have a foundation of the gospel. We're growing in our knowledge of Christ. And in this matter, these issues of internal church religion and things going on or, you know, ideas that we have that affect our conscience, Lord, we want to follow Jesus and follow Paul and follow your Holy Spirit. That we would not get caught up in lording our conscience over others, but rather we would be humble in our own conclusions and humble in honoring the conclusions of others. Father, this is how we have Christian unity. This is how we express the meekness and the mercy and the love of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.